The American Petroleum Institute, driving safety, environmental protection, and sustainability across the natural gas and oil industry through world-class standards and safety programs. Since its formation as a standard-setting organization in 1919, API has developed more than 800 standards to enhance industry operations worldwide. Find out more at api.org. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Government is the problem. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against uh, Kuwait. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. And my vice president has shot someone. Do you smell what Barack is cooking? You didn't build that. I'll give you all a big kiss, the women and the men. I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. Kiss those big, powerful men. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You're listening to the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, the show for those who want a spirited, irreverent, humorous, and occasionally informative discussion on the latest geopolitical issues that are impacting the energy sector today. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. Welcome to the program, my huddled masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, your industry malcontent and ATM of reckless opinion. All right, grab yourself a cup of coffee and let's get into it. Mm, there we go. All right, so uh, what do we got going on today? So we got a couple of things. We're going to do sort of a little bit of a grab bag since we have a lot of stuff piling up over here, especially with all the geopolitical things happening in the world today. So we're going to kind of catch everyone up on a few things, answer some questions, and hopefully get the books cleared up a little bit. So first things first, um, had a couple of reviews come in, so we're going to tackle those right quick. Uh, first one we're going to hit up comes from, uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, well, the name of the person that gave the review, or the, the username they gave, is EM, that's Echo Mike Energia. And I think, honestly, this is one of my um, the hosts in the network. I think this is Elena, uh, which I didn't think she listened to my show. And um, uh, I'm surprised. I thought I probably swear too much for her taste. But hey, if you're listening, I appreciate you. I really do. Um, and obviously, if you're listening to this show, you should check hers out. I think it's um, uh, the Energy Upstream something. Gosh, I should know the name of that, shouldn't I? I don't listen to a lot of podcasts is the problem. But um, she's super knowledgeable. She's the Department of Energy for, God, like 30 years. Um, super, super knows all sorts of stuff about the industry. So you should definitely check her show. I gotta, I now got to look it up um, because I'm terrible and I don't have all the show names memorized. But I think, it, yeah, it's Oil and Gas Upstream. Um, but yeah, you should absolutely, uh, absolutely check her show out. Anyway, <clears throat> all right. So she she left a very kind review, very nice review here about the Adipec episode. Thank you so much for listening, and um, I deeply appreciate that. And um, I'm uh, I'm honored you would take time out of your day to listen to my show. All right. The next one we got here is from Jane Dangerous. All right. Here here we go. Now I don't typically read um, the comments, because most of the time they're very, very nice, very kind, very thoughtful things, and I pathologically am avoidant to really accepting a compliment. But this one's a little bit more critical, so I'm actually going to read this one. Um, I'm not inviting you to send me more critical reviews, but you know, obviously I felt like I should respond to this. It was only a four-star rating, so 
It's the lowest one we've gotten so far. Anyway, the title of the comment is, uh, I think it's insane for the United States to be energy independent. Okay. I'll come back to that in a second. So here's the the, the rest of the review. Um, fun to listen to. Thanks. Learned a lot of stuff I didn't know. Awesome. Um, he kept it simple and didn't overcomplicate the issues for the sake of driving forward his ideas. Cool. I'm glad you glad you got something out of it. I don't know if I'd listen to it again. Fair enough. Uh, came over to these podcasts because I was looking for a show about fossils, not fossil fuels. Not sure how you got here on a search for fossils, but um, glad you made it. Uh, anyway, uh, Jane goes on to say, um, when I saw the Gas and Energy Network, I had to listen and see what kind of propaganda it was. Okay. Um, this show, unlike the other shows on this network, isn't propaganda. Well, thank you. I try. Uh, anyways, it's not to my taste, and I stuck around and had a good time and learned worthwhile information that is not, isn't easily accessible. Okay, so, a couple of things. One, I am kind of curious who, uh, well, first off, I have no clue, Jane, if you'll ever, um, listen to another show, and if you'll ever catch this one and know that I'm, um, I'm, I'm giving you a shout-out here. Anyways, thank you for the comment. Do appreciate it. Let me address a few points on here. I would be very curious to know... Uh, which shows you think are propaganda? And and I say that from this point of view. Several, and not all, but several of the hosts on the network I, I know I've hung out with, I've spent a little time with, um, you know, both in work and outside of work and that kind of thing. And uh, most of the folks that I at least can profess to have some level of personal knowledge of, uh, I don't think of as doing propaganda. I mean, most of these guys take Joe Battier, who's on the whole climate change and energy transition. I mean, that's his show is about uh, energy transition um, and all of that. Uh, I, don't th- I don't think it's propaganda, you know. Um, Elena or um, uh, any of the other folks, Delfina, uh, her show. I mean, most of these folks... And I'm being honest here. I don't think, to my knowledge, there's a ton of propaganda on this. Now, I think most of the people I know genuinely believe um, how they feel about the energy sector. They they really do think it's amazing or wonderful or whatever it is their or think there needs to be or whatever their their opinion is. I think it's it's come by natural. I mean, nobody is making oodles of money over here on this. None of us is Joe Rogan, unless, Joe, you're listening to this, but I'm pretty sure you're not. But my point is that, um, the, yeah, I don't, I don't know um, who, who you would be referring to that you think is um, propaganda. Uh, granted, I don't know all the hosts, and I haven't listened to every show. I haven't listened to the vast majority of them, in fact, as I've covered <laughs> many times. But I've met these folks, and I do believe they're um, they're pretty honest, straight up folks who are who are you know espousing their opinions as they see them. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, I just don't know that there's a ton of. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong on that because I haven't listened to it. But I, I think most of these folks are pretty honest, good people. So um, you know, I would just encourage you if you ever do listen again to sort of have that lens in mind. I think they really just do um, care about that. Uh, anyway, um, I do probably uh, I probably don't mention actual fossils as often as I probably should on this podcast, but um, you know, say lovey, I can't win them all. 
And if I had a good show to recommend to you for fossils, I would let you know, but I barely listen to podcasts as it is, so I can't um, I can't give you any advice on that one. But there's bound to be a good one. I'm sure you'll find one. Um, but anyways, I am glad you stuck around for the episode. I hope it was uh, – well, you said it was enjoyable, so I'm glad that you uh, you did, and hopefully you'll um, you know, you hang out some more. Um, but as I often say, if you don't like it, go find something you do like. Life's too short to listen to a podcast you don't enjoy. Um, now, the, the whole reason I read this is really the, the title. I think it's insane for the, for the U.S. to be energy independent. Um, yeah, okay. So let's just take a quick minute and talk about that for just a second. So here's the thing. Um, First, I'm going to start by defining what I consider in my head U.S. energy independence. Um, To me, U.S. energy independence in Jordan's brain is that the U.S. or any country that is seeking energy independence has the ability – and the uh, capability and technology and, and, and infrastructure to uh, explore, produce, uh, transport, refine, and utilize as much uh, energy as it needs in whatever form that is. You can say it's hydrocarbons. You can say it's you know solar, wind, or, you know, pixie dust, whatever. It doesn't really fucking matter. The point is that in my mind, energy um, independence is the ability of a nation to produce, generate, and and make use of all of the energy that it as a nation individually needs. Not running a deficit, not running much of a surplus, but they have the ability to, not that they're necessarily using it, but they have the ability to... um, create, um, you know, enough energy to sustain themselves through the course of normal operations. Now, here, here's the thing. I think, and I don't know, Jane, and I would love to get your, your take on this, honestly. If, if you ever do listen to this, please write in and kind of give me your thoughts in case I'm going in a different direction here. But I do want to clarify one thing, and that is that I don't think of energy independence, to me, all right, and other people may not feel this way, but to me, I don't think energy independence is that we put a wall up and no oil or gas or power or anything comes from anywhere else on the globe, and it's all just in-house, and we all make it ourselves, we produce it ourselves, and we refine it ourselves and use it ourselves, and that is it. That is it. There's nothing else. For a lot of reasons, I don't think that works. I mean, one, we're a global economy, whether you like it or not, that it is what it is. Energy prices are not controlled by the president or Congress or the secret Nazi moon base on the dark side of the moon. None of those things control oil prices. It's all the international market, right? And so the U.S. can't really like just – it's not like we can produce all the fuel we want and then cut ourselves off from the rest of the world. That's not really how this works. There's a lot more complicated economics to it with international fuel prices and, and all the things. To me, the U.S. should have, just as a as a option, the ability to, if something catastrophic were to happen, we should have the ability to produce all the energy that we need domestically, in my opinion. I'm not saying that we need to unplug ourselves from the global market and just use that. I just think that as a strategic policy, that's a good idea. Um, for a lot of reasons, it's not as, as – energy economics – 
do not lend themselves in this 21st century to pulling yourself out of other uh, of the global community. I mean, it really just doesn't work that way. Um, at least not for the level of energy consumption that we have, and especially with our um, you know interconnected geopolitical situation. So. Let me be clear. That is my stance on that. I think we don't have the ability to do, to do that if we had to. I don't think it's necessarily that we need to forcefully pull ourselves out of the global market, and I don't know that we could. Again, the U.S. and, in fact, most of global energy is dictated by the whims and will, price-wise, by the whims and will of the market, right? And it's not like um, Chevron or uh, the sarcophagus of Joe Biden or anybody else has a dial hidden under their desk that determines what the prices are. The prices are constantly in a state of of competition with with the open market, and that dictates certain things. Now, OPEC can do things like monkey with the prices by um, you know taking a large chunk of the world's reserves and and opening up the taps or closing them, and that adjusts the prices. And there's those those, those kind of gimmicky things that can monkey with the pricing, as we all know. But there's relief valves with other markets that aren't tied to OPEC that can moderate those sort of extremes, and, and it, it, it gets really complicated in the economics. But um, all of that to say, uh, that is my definition of what I think of for energy independence, and I would be very curious to hear your arguments for why you think it's insane or if I'm just down a rabbit hole that's not even what you were talking about. But if you ever do listen to this, please do write in. Uh, email is... Um, uh, I think it's jordan.driscoll at com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, as with anyone else, you guys all know it's open door policy. By all means, shoot me questions, which I have a few to get through today. But, Jane, if you ever do hear this, I would love to get your thoughts on that. Um, and, uh, you know, if you think I'm wrong, by all means, let's, let's talk about it. I'd love to hear it. Okay. So that covers sort of the first couple of things there. We do have a few other items that we got to uh, to hit up here. Um, so I did go on Joe Batir's show a couple weeks ago, and I think that's been released. Um, I like Joe; he's fun. Uh, anyway, so I had a good good show with him on um, energy transitions here on the network. That was fun, and um, I also obviously was in Abu Dhabi hosting the shows on um, the Energy Pipeline, which is Jordan Yates's show. Uh, the Caterpillar had me out there to host. Um, by all means, go check them out. Uh, I know they could, uh, they could, you know, sure, sure, would love to have you guys go give them a listen. Um, if you want to hear me uh, interview some people, some interesting folks at Caterpillar, by all means, have a, a listen to that. I will warn you, though, that obviously I am hosting this other show, this, this energy um, pipeline show, uh, but I'm the guest host, right? And so understand you're not getting an episode of Oil and Gas Geopolitics on it, right? There's no Jordan swearing. There's no uh, crazy opinions. I'm there to do a job for the folks at Caterpillar. I am there to interview these folks and ask them sensible questions and be a sane human being. I can't just be over there spouting off nonsense. So if you're expecting the usual Jordan uh, razzle-dazzle routine, uh, don't be disappointed. That's not what you're going to get. I was over there to do a job. And so I did my job, um, but hopefully you will check them out. You know, we'll uh, we'll see if I can uh, you know muddle through interviewing some folks. All right, so we got a few questions here that we're going to hit up that I kind of um, kind of come in here that I think we have to address on some level. 
So the first one, of course, is, uh, and it was part of a longer email, but the question, the core gist of it here, is what are your thoughts on the Israel-Hamas war? Now, here's the thing. I've had to give this a lot of thought because as most of you who have listened to this show for any length of time know, uh, possibly I've mentioned it before, I'm half Palestinian. I still have family in the UAE, and I have family, actually, that still lives in the West Bank. Um, I don't speak Arabic. I don't really culturally um, do the whole thing. I'm not Islamic or uh, Muslim or anything. Um, but a lot of my family is. You know, it's just not my thing. Um, needless to say, I have some mixed opinions about this whole thing uh, on some level. And let me let me clarify before my freaks out. Just hear, hear me out. Hear me out. At some point, I will probably do an episode on the Israel-Hamas war. It certainly seems like the kind of thing I would cover, and I normally would. However, it's a dicey thing for me to cover, um, primarily uh, for two reasons. One, I know personally I have some conflict. And when I say I have conflict with this, what I mean is um, I have family over there. I, I get the fact that things for the Palestinian population have not been super great. Um, and there's a lot of things we could go into with that, but I'm not going to because it's not terribly relevant for this show. But not super great for, for the Palestinian folks over there. On the other hand, for my uh, Israeli brethren and sistren, they got attacked by Hamas. Hostages were taken. People were killed that had no business getting killed. And... I don't know what it is about that strip of land over there, but um, you know, you guys have been trying violence as a solution for 3,000 years. It hasn't fucking worked out yet. Maybe we could try something else. I don't know. Just one guy's take. But the point is, I see both sides of this conflict, and my opinions are very conflicted because I can't just straight up and down say, uh, well, all the Palestinians are terrible. No, Hamas is certainly terrible. They've done some very stupid and dumb things, and now they're going to reap the whirlwind of that decision. But I feel very badly for the Palestinian people in general. Uh, the flip side is Israel was attacked and they're going to defend themselves. And historically, if you've cracked a history book in the past 50 or 60 years, and so let's call it 1946, Israel, hmm, kind of notorious for defending itself very assertively once attacked. So I don't know what Hamas thought they were going to get out of this. <coughs> Excuse me. I mean, I have my theories. I, I think this was all related to um, – I think this was very much related to trying to prevent Saudi Arabia from recognizing and normalizing religions with Israel or something to that effect. But anyway, the point is that's the first reason. I am a little closer to the situation than I am with, say, Russia, Ukraine, where I can be a bit more objective and a bit more um, – when it comes to this one, there's bias, Right. And, um, and so I'm having to step back, and I want to get facts, and I want to get all the figures, and I want to kind of see see some facts, see some real, real facts. And that brings us to our second point. There is a ton of information out there about this conflict, and there's a ton of misinformation, right? Did his, Israel hit a hospital? Did they not? Was it an exploding munition that Hamas tried to launch? I don't know. There's so much information, and so I don't want to risk – misspeaking about something, especially when it's so easy for someone to put, well, you're a Palestinian, you've got a bias here. Yeah, well, I do, and I'm trying to be very careful about that. So um, 
Yes, I will at some point cover this once I feel like I've gotten enough verified, solid information that I can make some informed opinions about the conflict. My surface level opinion is obviously Israel is going to defend itself, and they should because terrorist attacks is bullshit. And um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's just where we stand on that, right? We don't negotiate. As Reagan famously said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Um, and I get that. That's That just is what it is. Um, I also get the fact that there's a lot of ill will from Palestinians that feel like they've been shafted for uh, for quite a while. And so until, you know, I, I can actually get some information and, and take some space from this and form a cogent opinion, I'm not really going to deep dive into it any more than that because I um, – yeah, I just I gotta have better information before I can make a, his unbiased opinion as I can an actual fact based opinion. Um, I think is where I land on it. So my hearts go out to everybody on every side of that. Uh, to the folks, uh, families who were taken hostage by Hamas. Uh, my thoughts are with you guys. I hope uh, some of your loved ones make it back, and um, you know, uh, for all the folks on both sides of this thing that are getting bombed, attacked, whatever. Man, I, I I just want there to be peace over there, guys. And uh, like I said, we've done 3,000 years of fighting, hadn't really worked out. Maybe we could try something else. I don't know. Just maybe. Uh, and also, Hamas, let me play. You knew this was going to happen. I, what, did, what did you think? How did you think this was going to solve anything? You really? You know? So that's my thoughts on that. A uh, little long-winded, my apologies. But it's a question I've gotten several folks asking is when I was going to weigh in on this. And, and several folks have said, well, you're half Palestinian. How's that going to go? Well, what it just means is I'm going to be very cautious and thoughtful about what I say. And I'm going to wait till I have all the facts before I start ranting off in a public forum about what I think. So that's where I'm sitting right now. Uh, but I think we can agree for everybody, Israeli and, and the innocent folks that have been killed in this is is an absolute tragedy. And yeah. All right. Let's see what we got here. Uh, one question here from our, our boy Ludwig. Uh, why do you think uh, the U.S. no longer being a dominant world power is a bad thing regarding China? So this was actually in response to the last episode that I put out where I talked about um, that whole thing. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing for the U.S. not to be the, the dominant power. I mean, I live in the U.S., so I kind of like that, right? That's nifty. I'm, you know, hey, who doesn't, who doesn't like being in the nation that's on top, right? I mean, come on now. Let's just be honest. Uh, but the reality of it is, yes, I get what you're saying. Uh, history is cyclical, and nations come and go, Netherlands, UK, uh, US, whatever. I mean, all things in all time. Um, what I will say is this. If another country is going to establish sort of a, a position of global dominance, I want it to be one which is not a uh, – how can I put this somewhat delicately? Actually, not even delicately, just accurately say this. I want it to be a nation that is not a communist party apparatus, okay, and is not sort of a – I don't know if totalitarian regime is the right word, but it's sort of in that vein. I think you're gonna guys know what I'm saying, right? Like, I, I it does not need to be. An, I don't want an authoritarian government um, 
to be the next uh, global power. I think that's a bad thing. Uh, listen, man, if the Netherlands want to want to kick it back in there and, and become talk dog again and become the global policeman and do all that, which, granted, I don't think the U.S. ought to be the global policeman. Don't get me wrong. But hey, if the Netherlands want to take a shot at it, man, go for it, baby. Have have Take the driver's seat. Like, that's fine by me. You know, if the U.K. wants to give it another role, you know, Rishti Sunak wants to get up there and, um, you know, do his thing, have at it, man. You know, uh, France, sure, go have have fun. Um Hell, Kenya, man, why don't you guys take a shot at this? Uh, South Africa, maybe not so much. I've got a little bit of a problem with the uh, corruption thing going on. But, you know, my point is, my point is, I don't want the, 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 the global powers to be, if somebody is going to be sort of the reserve currency and the dominant nation and sort of all these things, I don't want it to be a, an authoritarian dictator. I want there to be some degree of, of um, uh, what's a um, yeah, I want someone with more classical liberal leanings, right? Someone, uh, a nation that values things like individual freedom and and you know individual liberty and all these kind of things. And we'll all argue on what that means, but I mean, I just don't think a communist regime is necessarily who I want to see in the in the center seat. Um, and that's just my opinion. So uh, there you go. Um, all right, let's see what else we got here. Do you think the U.S. will recognize Taiwan as a nation? Um, I think it's less of a question of whether or not the U.S. recognize. This is, again, in response to the last episode I did. I got quite a few questions on that one. Um, I think it's less an issue of whether or not the United States recognizes Taiwan as a nation and more a question of when does Taiwan want to change the status quo. I could do a whole episode about this topic, but... And I did a lot of research on this for a prior episode I did a while back about China. But the thing of it is that the – at least from the research I had, right, not physically being in Taiwan and living there and knowing the sense of the people. But from all the research I've done and from polls that the Taiwanese government has done, there is a seemingly overwhelming desire by the local population, by the Taiwanese people – to not change the status quo. They like the status quo in a lot of ways. Um, it gives them sort of this bizarre neutrality is not the right word, but there's there's something about the status quo that they don't really seem to want to change. Um, and I think until the Taiwanese people decide they're ready to cut that cord and use the term nation and really decide to assert themselves... I don't think it matters. I don't think the U.S. is going to change its position until Taiwan decides that it's it's going to come back from behind the curtain and and sort of firmly say for once and for all, like, yes, not only are we a de facto nation operating independently, but we are, in fact, de jure calling ourselves that, and we are going to enforce that globally and make everyone kind of recognize it. And so... Yeah, I don't think it's so much of an issue with the U.S. I think it's entirely when Taiwan decides to to pull the trigger on that that political situation. And at least as of, of the past couple of years, they don't seem to be interested in that. I mean, they're certainly preparing for a worst-case scenario with China. And make no mistake, I think if the majority of the world's uh, semiconductors gets wiped out in a Chinese invasion, yes, I think that very drastically changes the balance of power globally. And I also think it very drastically... Um, impacts virtually every nation on Earth in ways uh, 
<laughs> that are not good. But but yeah, it doesn't really matter what the it, it it does matter what the US decides to do as far as recognition goes and and what we call it. But I think the US government is one too busy with its own bullshit. Uh but more Notably, I think they're going to take their cues off what the Taiwanese government uh, decides to do. So, that's my opinion on that one. Uh, let's see here. <clears throat> what do you think of the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson? So, it's funny. I was talking to one of the producers here, texting with him. And uh, as soon as the election happened, because we've been sort of joking about it, uh, uh, <laughs> Mike, and he... Um, as soon as the the round happened where Mike Johnson got elected, he texted me, goes, who the hell is Mike Johnson? I said, yeah, it's a question everybody, including the people that voted for him, are probably asking right now. <laughs> uh, I don't have an opinion historically of Mike Johnson. I had to do some research on him, a little bit of reading. Um, from what I can tell, I mean, I don't think he's officially uh, Freedom Caucus per se. I think he's part of the Republican study group, which is sort of the large – Republican Party caucus in the House. Um, he's a pretty, he's a pretty white, right, right wing guy. Um, you know, anti-abortion, anti. Uh, um, I don't know all the sort of whatever the platform for the the, the far right is the stuff they go for. Um, you know, argue that the twenty twenty election was stolen and all that sort of thing, which um, whatever. Uh, but what I will say is, I mean, listen, if you're somebody that's sort of that's your that's your guy, that's your checkbox of the things you care about, you know, abortion, immigration, you know, covenant marriages and all that sort of thing. Hey, congratulations. You got your guy. Um, if that's not your cup of tea, then sorry about it. That's the world you live in for the uh, next couple of years. So it is what it is. Uh, me personally, I don't know. I mean, it, in a perfect world, uh you know, I mean, it's kind of like, right, you know, this guy's Speaker of the House now. So in theory, he has to make decisions and do things for the good of the country, not just like his constituency, right? If the people of whatever parishes that he represents in Louisiana like like his views and he represents the majority of their views, then cool. That's his job to go to Congress and to – to advocate for those people's views. That's what he's elected for. As Speaker of the House, he's beholden to, to to look at things from a broader context, right? And, you know, with us being, I mean, at this point, what, two weeks, three weeks out from the continuing resolution ending and us having to come up with a budget solution, what's that going to look like? Who the hell knows? That's the short answer. Um What's his position on that going to be? How is he going to work that out with um, with President Biden? I don't know. But he's got to figure something out because he's running the, uh, you know, I mean, he's effectively the, I mean, he's the third highest ranking member of the federal government. And he's, you know, uh, you know, he's got a, a very fractious Republican Party behind him that he's got to deal with. And, you know, I said it at the beginning of this year, for those of you that have been around since the start of this show, that I've always said the Republican Party is well on its way to a very serious internal civil war. And I think the Democrats are probably on their way to it as well, but they're probably about, you know, two, three, four elections behind the Republicans, and the Republicans were going to have their fractures show up first and hardest. And this is a good example of it. I mean, 
the whole Speaker of the House debacle was insane and still is. And I'm actually curious, and I don't know off the top of my head, but I have to go check now. Uh, did they change the rules for unseating a speaker, or is Mike Johnson going to be living under the same sort of Damocles that uh, that the last guy was under McCarthy? So what do I think of him? I mean, listen, in general, he's probably a little bit more like a little more towards the right on some things than I typically would be. But then again, some of the things we probably align on exactly. So, I mean, it just depends, right? I'm more libertarian, so I'm kind of, you know, good luck nailing me down. Um, you know, fiscal responsibility, I think he and I are probably right in line with. Um, that being said, this is not something that one budget is going to fix. You're going to have to actually come up with like a long-term plan to correct the U.S. fiscal policies, and it's going to be more than just one speaker and one president. Like, it's going to have to be a, a thing that gets fixed over a long period of time. And it's going to have to be consensus work with with Democrats. I mean, it just is because guess what? Republicans aren't going to just win every election, and neither are the Democrats. So uh, you know they're going to have to work together and figure out a long term method of of doing this. And you know nobody will. My God, we can't work with somebody that doesn't think like us. That'd be insane. Um. So yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, my hope is that he'll be good. You know, I wish him well in the role and would like to see him come up with some good creative solutions that don't involve, like, going nuclear and being in constant slap fights with the Democrats. But, you know, honestly, uh, you know, I guess that's the bottom line, right? I will judge him on the merits of the job he does. Um, I, that's all you can do with these guys, right? Like, you know, Biden, not a huge fan of him. I'll judge him on the merits of his time in his office once he gets there. Uh, Trump, same thing. All these guys, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt until you fuck up and I have to call you out on it. Um, so we'll see. That's that's where I'm at. I Like I said, I haven't really followed Mike Johnson. He's, um, it, he's just, I mean, he kind of came out of nowhere as far as I was concerned as a, a guy for that role. And I think he was the closest thing to a compromise. I mean, he was certainly – he's not Freedom Caucus, but I think he was pretty close on the spectrum to it. And I think that's as close as they could get to him ideological middle ground, but I mean, it just goes to show how fractious the Republican Party is right now, and uh, that party's got bigger issues to sort out right now, and uh, they need to fix those issues sooner rather than later if they're going to be competitive, especially, you know, we're two years out from the next presidential election, and this whole debacle did not do them any favors, and I'll tell you one thing, um, it's not really the question, but I'm going to throw it out there. Mike Johnson may – whatever he does or doesn't do in Congress with the um, with the House, the Republican Party in the House, he is going to have some of the biggest impact on how the Republican election goes in 24. I'll just go ahead and tell you that right now. Whatever choices this guy makes, they are going to have ramifications on Republican electability in the next election cycle, whether you <laughs> – I don't know where you, the listener, fall on the political spectrum, um, but this is the guy who's who's going to basically make some pretty big decisions that are going to to impact how well the Republicans do or don't do in the uh, the election cycle next year. So think through that. Yeah, yeah, my Republican brother and sister, and think through that. Um, 
if we go into another major government shutdown, especially with two you know large conflicts looming and all the other things happening and, and all of that, uh, there's just a it, it, there's going to be some serious backlash ramifications. Um, and granted, I've thrown this out there before as I was uh, meeting with a buddy of mine having some coffee who's a um, uh, he uh, has served, I think, as a at one point he was a member of the Republican National Party, he was a delegate or something. I don't know all the intricacies of the Republican or Democratic Party's internal processes. But he was very involved in that, and I think he might still be. But we were talking about it. I just said, listen, I mean, you know, the reality of it is I think the Republican Party is so fractured right now and so completely house-divided with no leadership and just very divergent opinions and all this. I said, you know, honestly, if the Democrats were smart and if they ran literally anybody other than Joe Biden, they'd probably take the next year's election in a landslide. Um and he agreed with me. He said, yeah, I mean, honestly, if they if they ran anybody other than Joe Biden, we would probably lose big. And uh, I kind of think the the funny thing is I think the opposite is true for the Republicans. You know, I think if the Republicans <laughs> ran anyone other than Donald Trump, regardless of what you think of him, just the baggage the man has, right? Um, if they ran anybody other than – like if they just ran a sane – normal-sounding human being who could put together a cogent sentence and walk across the stage without tripping over some air that we had lying around, they'd probably win the election in a landslide. But, I mean, the Republicans are just... They're doing everything they can to make this as hard for themselves as they possibly can. And um, the Democrats are doing a real good job of looking united and on top of it, even though their titular head is the sarcophagus of Joe Biden. So... I don't know. It's going to be a very uninspiring election, I fear. And um, ah, boy, we're just we're marching right towards the the gates of hell, aren't we? It's coming up, November twenty four. <sighs> anyway, well, there we go. I've hit at least some of the questions that were starting to pile up here. I am still going to do that. Um, I know I promised it for like two or three episodes now, but that UAE episode is coming. I promise you. Um, but I had to had to hit up some of these. So anyway, this is Jordan Driscoll reminding you that there's still a long road to the elections. Catch you guys on the next one. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.